I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. Very few actual flying saucers this time. This is Encounter 701, Big Feet from Space. So it's Series 7. What does that mean? Well, we've got a new theme for this handful of episodes, and that theme is tangentiality and creepiness. It's autumn, the creepiest season, and not just because of Halloween. No, it's because it's getting darker, but not so cold, at least where I am, as to keep you inside at night, so you can go out when it's dark and foggy and kind of damp. The trees are losing their leaves, where I am. If you're south of the equator, your mileage may differ. But the trees are losing their leaves, which makes their silhouettes sharper and pointier and more prone to look like things I would rather not see. I will tell you this, I've never been frightened by a leafed tree or an evergreen, but bare, leafless trees in November pretty much freak me out. Autumn is great, is what I'm trying to say. And the period between September and December has something of a track record of strange things happening. So that's the creepy. What's the tangential aspect about Well, it may come as no surprise to you that weird things don't necessarily exist in isolation from other weird things. UFOs, cattle mutilations, hauntings, cryptids, abduction-like experiences, time slips, all sorts of weird stuff is out there. And I've always sort of been on the side of the fence that suspects there are more connections between these things than disconnections. And I think those connections are very interesting. So the next half dozen or so episodes will be exploring some cryptids, some underwater stuff, some sky stuff, and Mothman. Yeah, Mothman. It's taken us almost 50 episodes, but I'm going to tackle Mothman coming up. And as usual, all of this will hopefully be done in such a way that even if you didn't know much about the subject, or you know a lot about the subject, you yourself might hear something that you didn't know. And first up is Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the Abominable Snowman, etc., Bigfoot pedants be warned. I'm sort of taking big hairy creatures as sort of one big thing um, because because we don't have all day, right? Are Bigfoot and his cousins just a primate we haven't cataloged? Or is he something from elsewhere? Theories abound. But this isn't a general paranormal show. And since the boundaries between all these weird things can be, or at least seem to be permeable, we're going to look at things like Bigfoot, etc., um, through the lens of flying saucers in, in some way, um, rather than getting into the argument of, of what physical evidence may or may not exist. So what's the connection between big hairy things or little hairy things and the saucer mystery? That's what we're looking at today. Often I hear the statistic that something like 20% of Bigfoot encounters are accompanied by a UFO sighting of some kind. And I'm not sure of the origin of that statistic, but it sticks in my head for some reason. And that's just an example of the kind of of high-minded, cutting-edge research and scholarship you've come to expect from this podcast. I seem to remember hearing a number somewhere, right? So there seems to be two extremes on the spectrum of responses to that statistic about the correlation, about some correlation between UFO sightings 
and Bigfoot or other hairy creature encounters. On the one hand, there's an argument from those who, who view the creature, who usually view the creature strictly as a, a physical example of an unacknowledged primate. Uh, such investigators might view this UFO Bigfoot connection as a distracting coincidence, pushing their cryptozoology into the uncomfortable territory of woo-woo weird stuff. On the other hand, there's the other extreme, which is the assumption that Bigfoot drives a flying saucer and is clearly some kind of alien. Dear listener, dear, dear listener, it should not surprise you to learn that I find the second extreme far more interesting than the first. But before that, I do want to share what may be my favorite weird creature, hairy creature, cryptid encounter from August 13th, 1965. Here's a contemporary report of the event from the UPI wire service. Blonde gets black eye as thing attacks car. Dateline, Monroe, Michigan. What weighs more than 400 pounds, smells moldy, growls like a mad dog, and dislikes automobiles? Answer, the Monroe County Monster. That was the latest on the thing that has been sighted here and there in Monroe County during the past two months by at least 16 persons, including Christine Van Acker, a 17-year-old blonde. Miss Van Acker, who goes to a beautician school here, has a black eye she said was inflicted by the monster Friday night. State police were checking her story and patrolling the area at night northeast of the southern Michigan city. Miss Van Acker gave this story of the encounter. I was driving mother, Mrs. Rose Owens, home. Suddenly there was this bump and a hairy arm grabbed me by the hair. It wasn't human or anything. I tried to go faster, but the car stalled. The girl fainted. Mrs. Owens, who jumped out of the car and ran for help, described the ordeal like this. The first I knew, there was this bang and an arm came through the window. Christine yelled, Mommy, help me. Oh my God, help. I told her to get the car going, but it stalled. The monster had his paw entwined in her hair and kept banging her head on the side of the car, and I decided the best thing to do was go for help. When I got back with other people, Christine was semi-conscious, and the monster was gone. The monster was at least seven feet tall, weighed 400 pounds, and it had a long reach. It was all covered with black, bristly hair, and towards the end of the hair, it was silver. You couldn't see its face, there was so much hair, and it growled, it had a real growl, and definitely it was not a bear. Christine said she was sure it was not a bear because bears have fur and this thing had prickly hair like thorns. She also said she was sure it was not a prankster because, quote, nobody human would do anything like that. The monster sightings have occurred in Frenchtown and Ash Townships within the last 60 days. One man reported the monster climbed into his car and thumped on the roof and fenders before disappearing into the woods. A woman reported she saw the monster and it smelled moldy. The evaluation of this case from Uricat, the UFO Entities Related Catalog, is, quote, probable confusion, comma, bear, end quote. Maybe, maybe not. I couldn't find a saucer sighting in conjunction with this. Um, the closest I found was from two days later in Roseville, Michigan, about an hour away. And it struck me as possibly significant because it also involved a mother and daughter driving in a car. And when I say that out loud, it doesn't sound very significant at all of a connection, really, but still. The hairy creature from space phenomenon may be, perhaps, summed up in a few stories from South America in the 1950s. For this, we turn to one of the best primary sources for South American ufology for those of us who don't speak anything but English, the APRO Bulletin. They had a number of very good correspondents in South America, and APRO always seemed to have the, uh, the, the earliest scoop on anything happening in South America. And in fact, if you look at 
any sort of South American UFO stories from the 50s or 60s, in whatever book you find them in, you trace those stories back, and the first time usually they appeared in English, in print anywhere, was in the APRO Bulletin. The January 1955 issue was a special edition dedicated to recent reports from South America, including three tales of hairy dwarves, a label introduced here that has pretty much stuck ever since. Here's the first one. On December 16, 1954, President of the United States Dwight D. Eisenhower told a press conference that flying saucers are not from outer space and exist only in the imagination of the viewers. On the night of that momentous announcement, young man of San Carlos, Venezuela, was set upon by small, hairy, man-like creatures and spent the night in hospital under the care of physicians for treatment of shock. The most believable part of the San Carlos incident is the reason for young Jesus Paz being where he was when, he, when the whole thing happened. Here are the details. Paz and two friends had dined at a restaurant at San Carlos, then proceeded home. When the party neared the exposition park of the Ministry of Agriculture, Paz asked the driver of the car to stop while he went behind some bushes, apparently to relieve himself. His friends, still in the car, heard a piercing scream which literally raised the hair on their heads. They rushed toward the spot where Paz had entered the brush, came upon their friend unconscious on the ground, and were just in time to see a hairy dwarf running toward a flat, shiny craft which hovered a few feet off the ground. One of the men, Luis Mojia, National Guardsman, reached for his gun, but remembered it was back in his barracks at guard headquarters. Mejia then picked up a stone and futilely threw it at the craft, which had taken the dwarf in and was rising into the air with deafening buzzing sounds. At last report, Paz was under the care of doctors, and all three men were telling convincingly hair-raising stories to the authorities. Paz is not only suffering from shock, but has several large, long, deep scratches on his right side and along the spine, as if clawed by a wild animal. Less than a week before that incident, a similar one had taken place. Just six days prior to Eisenhower's announcement that saucers do not exist, Lorenzo Flores and Jesus Gomez of Carora, Venezuela, related their experience with four hairy creatures near the Trans-Andean Highway between Chico and Cerro de las Retores. The boys had been hunting, and when they sighted bright objects off the highway, they thought it was a car. Upon approaching, they saw an object which appeared like two wash bowls placed one on top of the other and hovered about two and a half feet from the ground. They estimated the size at about ten feet in diameter and said it gave out fire from the bottom. In the boys' own words, then we saw little men coming out of it. They were approximately four feet tall. When they realized we were there, the four of them got Jesus and tried to drag him towards the object. I could do nothing but take my shotgun, which was unloaded, and thrust hard blows with the butt of the gun at one of them. The gun seemed to have struck rock or something harder as the gun broke into two pieces. Could they notice any features of the little men, they were asked by reporters? No, said Flores. We could see no details, but what we did notice was the abundant hair which covered their bodies and their great strength. Gomez could re remember little of the incident, for he had fainted from fright when the creatures grabbed him. When asked if they saw the saucer leave, the boys said no, that when they broke away, they ran as fast as they could for the highway, about 150 feet away. Exhibiting scratches and bruises, their shirts torn to shreds, the boys rushed to the nearest police precinct and told their story. Investigation by authorities showed signs of the fright and where the saucer had rested. They were examined by psychiatrists, found to be sane, responsible young men, but the United States Air Force and the President say that saucers do not exist. Man, Coral is having a hard time letting go of that official presidential denial of flying saucers, isn't she? 
Jim Lawrenson uh, supplied some commentary on the subject of the hairy dwarves, which is notable because on average we have far more writing from Coral than we do from Jim during this time. So it's, it's nice to hear from, uh, from Jim Lawrenson in some of these old APRO newsletters. The first and most prevalent objection we've heard runs something like this. I can't believe that such animal-like beings could have attained the scientific know-how necessary to build spacecraft. And little careful consideration will show that this is emotion speaking, not reason. We are, after all, animals. A very high type of animal, of course. Primates, yes, but animals nonetheless. And what could be more animal-like than an animal? Well, let's call them beast-like then, ignoring the fact that some men have proven themselves to be more beastly than any real beast that ever lived. But no matter what we call them, what we really mean is simply that they are not human-like. This, then, reveals the real source of our objection, human vanity. We humans are so intelligent that we just naturally assume that any other intelligent being must look like us. We're afraid we'll have to face it. Little hairy dwarves could be a little smarter than we. Gustavo Gonzalez reports that the dwarves he encountered were attired in some sort of loincloth. He compared them to diapers. Such a skimpy garment adorning a hard, hairy body was obviously not warm for warmth or protection. Why, then? For reasons of modesty, of course. Another characteristic in common with us humble humans. Scriptural sources attribute the cause of human modesty to the original sin. Do the hairy ones have an original sin of their own, or did their ancestors drop by in days gone by and snatch a snack from that selfsame tree? One thing that I think gets lost when looking at some of these old accounts of hairy dwarves and other sort of strange creatures connected with flying saucers is that in 1955, January of 1955 at that, we're still sort of in the earliest phases of the flying saucer mystery, and most of the contacts with, uh, with occupants of these craft, or alleged contacts with alleged occupants of the alleged craft, to cover all our allegations, most of these contacts were with beings who seemed very human, um, who in many cases, such as with the contactees, described themselves literally as humans from another planet. So the advent of, of hairy dwarf-like creatures was, um, was a new thing. Something non-human coming out of a saucer was still a fairly new thing. And, and the less human the creatures were, the more, uh, the more troubling and more surprising it might be. In our 20th, 21st century world of people claiming that there are 47 different alien species living among us on the planet, sometimes we forget that there was a time when all of this was very new. So size disparities between Bigfoot and all of these little feet aside, I tend to think that it would be very difficult to entirely discount a connection between strange hairy creatures um, without an accompanying saucer sighting and strange hairy creatures with an accompanying saucer sighting. So are the big feet we see without a flying saucer the same big feet? I'm so sorry, Joshua Cutchin, to keep saying big feet. The same Bigfoot-like creatures we see when there is a sighting? Do the sightings indicate a different type of creature encounter? Interesting to think about. Some writers have gone down much further into the rabbit hole of Bigfoot or, or Sasquatch, if you will, as alien, or in some cases, an earthly creature that has some kind of special connection to aliens. My first example of this is from a writer named Dirk Gillibel. Gillibel's work can be found at soul-guidance.com, which has a great variety of material of many different kinds. Gillibel cites the work of a Jack Lepsertus 
and links to a YouTube video of Jax where he talks about some Sasquatch and Bigfoot related things. That uh, that video has been taken down because of, uh, quote, numerous copyright violations. Clearly, the man continues to bury the evidence of the truth. Um, fortunately for us, Gillibell has recorded some of Lapsertus's words. The Bigfoots say this is their planet. It was given to them to populate by the friendly ETs who brought them. The Bigfoots say they are keepers of Mother Earth. The Star People and Bigfoot People have both expressed that they understand and accept all of us are an integral part of the Great Oneness, and like the traditional Amerindian tribes, wish for all world nations to understand and practice basic respect for every living thing in God's universe. Another bit of information from Gillibell may explain the size disparity between Bigfoot creatures seen on their own and the hairy dwarves like we see in South America coming out of the flying saucers. Bigfoot is, is not always that big, though. There are several species who differ in height and live in different regions of the Earth. Some are 12 foot tall, others are a little smaller than humans. Basically, there are two species. One is the gorilla type, and these are built very robust, with thick bones and thick muscles. They have a gorilla type face that is covered with hair like the rest of the body. Their arms are very long, up to their knees. Despite the animal look of their physical body, they are human-like in regards to their consciousness and intelligence. The other kind has a human face and are said to be very beautiful. Except for their face, they had hair all over their body, too. Their arms are in proportion the same as humans. This second type of Bigfoot are called the Ancient Ones. They are very intelligent and wise. Gillibell also connects Bigfoot-type creatures to a wide variety of other paranormal and esoteric topics. In all likelihood, the more aggressive humans, Homo sapiens, displaced the Bigfoot species to very remote areas. Although Bigfoot is now living in hiding, chance encounters are not that rare as one might think. Bigfoot moves around in the mountains and forests, but has been encountered in caves and underground tunnels too. Bigfoot eyes are different than those of humans. They have night vision, and this allows them to move around underground without the need for illumination. This brings us to the existence of vast underground tunneling cave systems and cities, remnants of the past Atlantean civilizations. Some of these are still used by various intelligent beings. Some of them have been living underground for a long time. Some of them are extraterrestrials who have underground bases. Why does this relate to Bigfoot? Because where Bigfoot is seen, flying saucers are seen, and their occupants, mostly the greys who work for the mantis reptilians and the so-called Nordic hybrids, those who have been in close contact with Bigfoot always report that Bigfoot is connected with those aliens. This is an important observation. Although the Bigfoot species live in remote areas and family settings, they are under the control and are used by the aliens. With those aliens, we always run into the concept of genetic manipulation. Over the past decades, we have been well informed by abductees and contactees that the alien group, which now controls our planet, is heavily engaged in creating human-alien hybrids, which are meant to be put on the surface of this planet at the present and in the near future. Everything always comes back to underground alien bases in some way, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. Everything circles back around to underground alien bases. It's like you can't escape it. This discussion of, um, of, of Bigfoot is part of a, actually a wider discussion in an article of why Bigfoot has been seen to have red eyes. It's very important. Because Bigfoot frequently uses the underground system, their eyes might have been genetically altered to allow them the necessary night vision so they can move around in the dark without the need for carrying a torch or light. This leads us to the red eye phenomenon. Why would Bigfoot eyes light up with a red glow? This might have to do with the psychological impact on humans. How would you feel when you encountered a large, hairy, heavy Bigfoot at night who is staring at you with eerie red glowing eyes? 
The key to this red glowing eye feature of Bigfoot is the appropriate electrification of his body. This is done by the technology aboard the ships of the aliens who control and use Bigfoot. When necessary, they emit a particular plasma beam to the Bigfoot and probably to the other strange creatures they control. This plasma beam is pulsed in a particular way to create the desired effect. So, here you have it. Whenever you see a creature in the dark with red glowing eyes, there is an alien ship hovering nearby, and they don't want you to come closer and investigate what they're doing. So turn around and go the other way. This is, is literally the plot of um, two Doctor Who stories from the 1960s, um, The Abominable Snowman and The Web of Fear, in which the Doctor and his companions battled the Yeti, who it turns out were, were sort of robotic servants of a uh, sort of disembodied, disembodied alien known as the Great Intelligence. So Bigfoot being under, under the control of an alien force is, is not something new. I, I will say that, uh, that those Doctor Who episodes were pretty Pretty good, though. Anyway, the graphic on the bottom of the webpage where he explains all of this Bigfoot stuff, is, is it's a picture of Mothman rather than an actual Bigfoot type of creature. But hey, what's the difference? They're all weird creatures under alien control, right? As we'll see, there are several different ways to connect a seemingly physical phenomenon like Bigfoot to a wider array of paranormal and esoteric topics, events, or concepts. One way is what we've just seen the author simply providing a list of weird things and saying they're all sort of the same thing with very little way of connective tissue to see how one might logically lead to another. Why are the aliens controlling Bigfoot? How are the aliens controlling Bigfoot? If Bigfoot was brought here by the star people at the dawn of time, why would they in their intelligence? I'm I'm asking too many questions of a a seriously loopy story, but, but still... Another writer who has done much to broaden broaden the field of cryptids and what they might mean, do, or be connected to is Joan Ocean. She describes herself thus. A master of science and counseling psychology, Joan Ocean is a psychologist, shaman, and scientist who creates environments that support people in transition from one lifestyle, one dimension, and one physical form to another. She's mostly involved with cetacean communications. That means... She uses psychic powers to talk to dolphins about stuff. Her most recent communications from the cetaceans include a process using neurosonic harmonies and precise tetrahedral resonances for advancing into various frequencies of refined, loving energies inhabited by other sentient beings. She can access vibrational frequency environments that exist beyond time. Once beyond time, we can travel anywhere in the local universe. Joan and the dolphins have been visiting the many futures of planet Earth and using the knowledge obtained there to awaken people to the powerful significance of their own futures and their present lives. And you can too. She'll teach you. Really. Implementing the teachings of the dolphins, Joan facilitates Week with Joan Ocean seminars where people visit future worlds and parallel realities accompanied by the dolphins. Ms. Ocean... And you know, I'm a little suspicious of that pseudonym, is hosting one of these events coming up in December here in 2018. The cost is $1,450, which includes, quote, gatherings at the beautiful Green Mountain Ranch, ocean views all around, each day with Joan Ocean, the mini horses and donkeys, four days on the boat to swim with the dolphin pods, and all the seminar meetings and meditations, end quote. 
for that $1,450, by the way, you don't get airfare, food, or lodging. I also see no guarantee, written or implied, of which parallel world you may end up in. Anyway, I've, I've gone down the rabbit hole of, of cetacean communication. Joan Ocean has done some work on Sasquatch. Did you know that Sasquatch can read, write, shapeshift, project their voice, create infrasound that affects the environment, dematerialize at will or cause you to have an experience of lost time so you think they dematerialized, travel 300 miles a day on foot, live in well-lighted underground facilities, contact and live with star people, tell us about our past and our future, have lived here longer than the human race. Gotta be honest, I had not known all of that. But this is interesting, this story. Ocean spends a great deal of time um, on our website, joanocean.com, de- detailing her adventures with uh, the Sasquatch, which begins by sending a Sasquatch a copy of her book and receiving a handwritten note in response. The Sasquatch lives in the woods near her friend's house, and she, she sent a copy of her book to uh, to the friend and said, leave this. I literally said, leave this for the Sasquatch. I think they'd be interested in it. It came from the medicine woman of the Sasquatch family in a southeastern location of America near my friend who I will call Susan to ensure her privacy. Apparently, the great-grandmothers of this Sasquatch family have had contact with white people and learned to read and write in English, although they had their own language as well. This may not be true of all Sasquatch people, but it is definitely true of this clan. Having read my book, or at least on receiving it and understanding who I am, through some inner sensing abilities, they named me Water Woman. Incredulous as it sounded, I withheld judgment until I could learn more. This may make me unpopular, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. There are some times when I think it's okay not to spend too much time withholding judgment, and I think this is one of them. Go ahead and judge. It's fine. Your first instincts that you should be suspicious of the note written by a Sasquatch medicine woman, your suspicion of that is probably on the right track. There's a lot here to process, and it's a very long story, and I'll move along to the extraterrestrial connection here. On March 23rd, 2007, Ocean met with the Birdman of the Ancient Ones, um, through psychic means, of course. She didn't physically meet the Birdman. Uh, She'd learned of the Birdman from the Wise One, one of the elder Sasquatches, and most of the account is about about how the ancient mound-building peoples of North America learned much from the Birdman. Near the end, we get to the good stuff. Now Birdman showed me one more piece of the story. He gave me the view of him, him herself as he entered the space vehicle above the clouds. Upon entering the reception area of the great floating disc-shaped structure, he was met by his kinsmen on the ship. They were very tall Nordic beings, handsome of face and human-like. His form as Birdman changed. He let me see that he was one of the star people and that he was a Nordic as well. To work kindly and sensitively with the mound builders, he appeared in a form they accepted as part of their mythology. He was part bird and part man. How appropriate. How inspiring for them. The people loved the humanitarian bird man, and eventually, when the people were ready, the huge floating disc in the clouds was lowered into view, hovering above the flat roof of the temple, allowing the mound builder leaders and medicine people to enter. There, they sat in council with the spiritual bird man tribe, and continued to pass on their wisdom to all the people who resided in North America in those ancient of days. Here, with Ocean's account of this, we have another example of, of this blending of indigenous culture, history, and the paranormal. And I didn't plan it. It just sort of shows up everywhere. Like Gillibel's accounts and, and, and arguments, 
Oceans are a hodgepodge of, of esoterica, new agery, and fringe history and archaeology. And the intersection of aliens and Bigfoot creatures, again, is presented as, I'm going to talk about all the things I like at the same time. Um, there doesn't seem to be necessarily a coherent conceptual connection between them, other than it's all weird stuff. Most of the time, the tales of Sasquatch she presents are, are, are part of a sales pitch, honestly, because just like she has seminars where you can go swim with the dolphins and, and see the future. She also has done uh, retreats in the woods in the southeastern U.S. where guests can commune with the Sasquatch if they're lucky. If you go to her website and look at this stuff at joanocean.com, you can see some pictures from these uh, Sasquatch retreats. But as fun and as goofy as these things may be, there are other approaches to exploring this intersection and other intersections of various paranormal manifestations. I'm going to share a couple of these with you that I, I find are particularly interesting. One, and, and probably one of the most well-known, comes from John Keel, and we'll be hearing about John Keel a lot in the coming episodes. But today, we're going to look very briefly at his discussion of what he calls the super spectrum and the ultra-terrestrials who might exist in such a realm. Keel connects this to strange creature sightings in his excellent book, The Eighth Tower, on ultra-terrestrials and the super-spectrum. Where does a dinosaur hide? Or a 90-foot sea serpent? Or an 18-foot-tall hairy humanoid? Do they creep into a hidden network of deep caverns, as some of the believers claim? It is more probable that these are not actual animals, but are distortions of our reality, inserted into our time-space continuum by the mischievous forces of the super-spectrum. The reported density of some of these creatures indicates they are not flesh and blood, but are composed of highly condensed atoms comparable with plutonium. And like plutonium, a man-made radioactive metal, they deteriorate at a rapid rate. So beyond our normal spectrum of perception, just like there are sounds we can't hear and colors, parts of the visual light spectrum we can't see, there are other things we can't see that occasionally bleed into our portion of the spectrum. And this whole thing, Keel calls the super spectrum and toys around with the idea of there being creatures who inhabit that, that occasionally break into our portion of that spectrum called the ultra terrestrials. It's, it's an interesting idea and I've, I haven't done it justice here, but he goes on to try this idea out that he's talked about here against a particularly well-known case and then discusses, um, some implications of the trace evidence that's been found at some of these sighting areas. Some of our funny monsters remain in an area for several days and are seen by many people before they finally disappear. Token attacks on domestic animals occur throughout the period because the monster is somehow replenishing its diminishing energies with earthly animal matter. But it's a losing battle, and the monster must ultimately melt away, leaving nothing but a terrible stench behind. In several instances, UFO lights have appeared above the monsters and cast a powerful beam of light onto them. The monsters vanished, leaving only a residue of silicon carbide, a very hard crystalline compound, which has been found in hundreds of UFO and monster sites all over the world. Often it's mistaken for common furnace slag. It is logically the only remains of the transmogrification process. Believers in the extraterrestrial hypothesis have been repeatedly disappointed by the appearance of forms of silicon, one of the most common substances on Earth, at UFO sites. They would prefer to find some exotic, unidentifiable metal not of this Earth. In the prelude to the great 1947 UFO wave in the U.S., the ghost rockets that swarmed over Scandinavia in 1946 often left large quantities of silicon carbide in their paths. In the most important UFO event of 1947, the complex Maury Island mystery in Tacoma Bay, also produced a great heap of slag. 
We cannot name the place where flying saucers and hairy monsters come from, but we do know where they go. The poor slobs literally melt. A 1977 uh, UPI story about Keel's speech at the International Congress of UFO Phenomenon was a bit more sensationalist in its tone, but gets Keel's ideas out there pretty thoroughly and entertainingly. Although I do acknowledge here that Keel's tone is a bit over the top, and that's something we'll deal with in future discussions of Keel. The basic notions match up with the ideas we heard there from the Eighth Tower. UFO Congress shudders at Scribe's report. Dateline Acapulco. Flying saucers, Bigfoot, the abominable snowman, leprechauns, and ghosts do not exist, researcher and journalist John Keel said Wednesday in a report that shocked the International Congress of UFO Phenomena. All these phenomena are hallucinations, Keel said, and their cause is ominous. Savage, subterranean, magnetic fields of hideous strength that have the power to control men's minds. We must find the source of this energy, Keel said. In that way, we might change our collective destinies. It is not benevolent. It is ruthless and apathetic, like electricity. It can be used to kill or run a machine. Keel's revelations took the form of a debunking of the case for the extraterrestrial origin of unidentified flying objects. The evidence against the case for visitors from other worlds, quote, is overwhelming, Keel said, and most of the literature published by UFO believers, quote, is nothing but garbage. Keel, who said he had 30 years of UFO investigation behind him, reported he has found similarities in the reports of anyone who has ever sighted a UFO or reported seeing, quote, monsters, leprechauns, dinosaurs, ghosts, kangaroos. Normal people will see these sites in certain circumstances, Keel said, in Earth zones of certain magnetic characteristics. Monster sightings tend to follow UFO sightings, Keel said, and they occur in the same places and in the same time periods. Other similarities he noted in his analysis of such unusual phenomenon were a reported odor of brimstone, rotten eggs, or hydrogen sulfide, and the frequency with which otherworldly experiences occur on Wednesdays. There are other ways that researchers and writers have investigated the intersections between different strands of paranormal experience in ways that are often more nuanced and thought-provoking than those of, of Ocean or Gillibel. Joshua Cutchin's first two books, A Trojan Feast and The Brimstone Deceit, interrogate descriptions of eating, taste, and scent in order to understand the underlying connections between disparate paranormal manifestations, including Bigfoot, alien encounters, and the stories relayed through centuries of fairy lore. At the core of his analysis, like that of Keel, is the suspicion that mere physicality or materiality might not be the whole story. He also examines the possibility that what witnesses see as Bigfoot or other creatures, could be something else entirely. None of this is to claim necessarily that fairies are aliens or vice versa, nor that Sasquatch isn't a living, breathing animal. Regardless of one's personal beliefs, any researcher should feel vindicated if, upon wakening tomorrow, they read headlines that a flesh-and-blood Sasquatch was captured or a nuts-and-bolts alien spaceship has landed on the White House lawn. However, if we are honest with ourselves, we must take notice of these similarities. Such comparisons highlight how high strangeness of anomalous experiences cannot be pigeonholed, despite how much we want to force each phenomenon into its own discrete box. The extraterrestrial hypothesis in particular is a tidy explanation for a grossly untidy phenomenon, and one often invoking theater, humor, absurdity, and spirituality on a constant basis. What we may be dealing with is something far more bizarre and intimate than little green men from outer space, undiscovered apes. Or mere folklore. He continues with a further exploration into um, 
this, this question of, of what Sasquatch or Bigfoot is and why people's determinations of what it might be can be the product of flawed reasoning. There's a trap, he says, that explanations of Sasquatch fall into. Either it's real or it isn't. If it is real, Sasquatch is either an undiscovered primate or something far stranger. If it's the former, it's either man or beast, and if the latter, either a spirit or an alien. It is disingenuous to suggest that all Sasquatch sightings can be answered by conventional biology. It is equally disingenuous to ignore the fact that a great many sightings exhibit typical primate behavior and physiology, hooting, piloerection, hair standing on end, conical heads, bluff charging, etc., but there is a moderate approach by which we can reconcile mundane and bizarre sightings. Consider the possibility that some witnesses see undiscovered primates while others see something far stranger that is utilizing the imagery of an undiscovered primate. With Saucer Life HQ being located in the American Midwest, tales, um, speaking of cryptozoology and cryptids, tales of a dogman are never far from people's lips when they discuss stuff like this. Cutchin presents some tales of dogmen in The Brimstone Deceit, with witnesses describing a sickening odor that is unlike the odor of rotting animals. Interestingly, as I looked around, I noticed a couple dog or wolfman-related tales in which, wit- in which witnesses noticed no odor, or only the odor of wet dog, rather than the rotting smell or garbage smell that often accompanies these kinds of things. And this made me wonder... Is the presence or absence of odor an indicator of one particular manifestation versus another? Does the lack of odor in some cases indicate a lack of physicality? Or does the witness just have a terrible sense of smell? I think what it indicates more than anything is that there's no perfect system and no finalized set of checkboxes that determine the nature of these encounters. And what Cutchin said in that second selection about what we may be dealing with that others, instead of seeing a Sasquatch, see something far stranger that is utilizing the imagery of an undiscovered primate. That kind of thing, a screen vision or a screen memory or, or, or an experience, a, a phenomenon that is using a familiar image that might be somewhere in the person's mind to, to mask itself. I, I have to sort of wonder when, when I see encounters that have something like odor associated with them, and ones that don't, I kind of wonder, does that indicate a different, like I said, a different type of encounter? It's, it's an interesting sort of thing. Cutchin has a new book out, Thieves in the Night, which is all about supernatural child abduction. And I heartily, heartily recommend uh, you, you buy his books. They're very, very good. And um, I've got to say that the, the cover of Thieves in the Night is one of the most unsettling book covers you will own. And it's, it's very much an autumnal sort of thing. I, I've got it. I've, I've read through it a little bit. I plan on giving it a good solid read as October begins because it feels like an October book. So a final note. In the course of researching this topic, I happened across some things while searching Amazon for Bigfoot. I encountered Bigfoot romance novels. Now, vampires? Sure, but Bigfoot? The show's cryptid advisor, we have a cryptid advisor, informed me that there was also such a thing as Mothman romance. The show's romantic literature advisor, we have a romantic literature advisor as well, acted like I was a wee innocent child for not knowing that adult-themed Bigfoot romance existed. In the interests of science, I noticed some of these things were free, so I took a look. Sasha, our cryptid advisor, had warned me that there were things one could not unread, and I should have heeded her warning to stay away. 
because yikes. But here is a a family-friendly representative passage from Bigfoot and the Bridesmaid. This is real life, folks. Let me set the scene for you. Jill, the bridesmaid in Bigfoot and the Bridesmaid, has, after serious consideration, decided that a life of romance and adventure in the woods with Bigfoot might not be for her. Deep down, though, as enticing as the idea of a primal existence was, Jill realized that the creature's life was a lot more difficult than she would be able to tolerate for very long. Sooner rather than later, she'd long for a nice cup of coffee, a hot bath, and a cozy bed to sleep in. That's a, a relatable sentiment, I suppose. It, it's difficult to, uh, to uproot yourself and move into the woods with Bigfoot. Here's a passage, again, family-friendly, uh, from a book titled He's Even Bigger Where It Counts. This is a real thing that exists. This was a nice little flying saucer podcast last week. Now look at us. I was only 26 years old with my Ph.D. in zoology. I had studied under the world-renowned zoologist Dr. Andrea Johnson at Harvard. She was the most famous expert in the world in debunking claims of cryptozoology. I hadn't just studied under her, but was her teaching assistant for several semesters. I also worked with her for my Ph.D. dissertation on the topic of animal mutilations in South America and the legend of the chupacabra. After I graduated with my doctorate, I started to look for jobs, but didn't even need to. Dr. Johnson invited me to be her personal assistant. It was my dream job and offered me the chance to travel around the world investigating paranormal phenomena. And this is a perfect place to close, I think. Um, This may be a perfect place to, uh, to, to just stop existing, actually. After hearing about interdimensional Sasquatch communication... The, the purpose for Bigfoot's red eyes, the Monroe monster, and everything else we've heard, that passage has perhaps the least believable scenario we've ever presented on this show. Next time, we begin a multi-episode look at the Mothman, Point Pleasant, the value to be found in differing narratives of the same event, and the importance of place. The Saucer Life, Encounter 701, was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. It also featured the voice of our romance literature advisor, Roberta Evangeline Straith. Our cryptid advisor is Sasha Gimlinson. Our advisor relations advisor is Nelson Sanat. You can explore the archives at saucerlife.com, and you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. Till next time, keep watching the woods, because something in the woods is watching you. <laughs>